It's time for InsureTalk with insurance industry tech geek and Guidewire chief evangelist, Laura Drabik. In this podcast series, we don't just talk about innovative ideas in PNC insurance. We talk with industry trailblazers about the big ideas they made happen and how they did it. If you're looking for insights on the trends and technologies reshaping the industry, an all-new InsureTalk starts now. Welcome to InsureTalk. My name is Laura Drabik, and I'm the Chief Evangelist at Guidewire. In this episode, I have the privilege of interviewing Brian Falchuk, insurance and insurtech executive and advisor. Brian is also a best-selling author, leadership coach, and professional speaker. The focus of today's discussion will be on the future of insurance, which coincidentally is the title of Brian's best-selling book series. Hello, Brian. Thank you for joining my podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, Laura. Tell our listeners about yourself and how you spread thoughtful ideas on the future of insurance. Sure. I'm an insurance veteran. I've been in the PNC space in particular for just over 20 years, and I've had the pleasure and honor of working for a couple different carriers and then also spending some time at McKinsey in their insurance practice. And I got my dream job. I was uh, in the C-suite of the last carrier I was at, and I left to join an InsurTech right after they raised their Series A, which you know a lot of people were scratching their heads, like, why would you do that? But it was fun and exciting and interesting, and there's so much going on in this industry. You know, what a great way to see the other side of the equation and, and the movement going on. And so I ended up leaving that after a year to try to help more insurers, more InsurTechs, kind of navigating this really interesting time of change and opportunity. In your book, The Future of Insurance, From Disruption to Evolution, you describe the first disruption of insurance being from the internet. Yes. The new idea being that people would actually want to quote or even buy insurance online. So Brian, how did insurers navigate this disruption and what did they learn from this experience? It was so funny, Laura, because it wasn't just the internet. It was people were like, have you heard of this internet thing? Like we had to <laughs> use the word thing because we didn't quite know what it was yet. That's how early days it was. But I think it it was a time where renters was like just starting to think about offering quotes online. I mean, it was really early in what the internet was going to mean for the industry. And I don't think people had figured it out. And there was a ton of doomsday predictions going on. I mean, that was the first thing I got my first day at Liberty Mutual where I started my career was someone's like, did you hear about this internet thing? Agents and brokers are going to be gone in like a year. And of course, over 20 years later, that's not been the case. But a lot has changed. And I think for so much of us in the industry, we engaged in the question of what the internet could be in more traditional ways, which were much more insular, waterfall kind of approach and, and with trepidation. And I think if you fast forward to today, you're seeing a lot more discussion about customer centricity and how you engage in these new ways of transacting and trying to listen to what customers and your various partners actually need and meeting that instead of presuming the answers for them. So we still have progress we need to make as an industry, but that was probably the biggest learning is for a lot of folks, we thought we were just digitizing the paper that we had always dealt with or, or removing the facts and doing it through a web page. And that's not really the right answer because it's a totally different medium and a lot of use cases and use styles still needed to develop. So it's been really interesting to watch. It's kind of strange after 20 years seeing some carriers still sort of stumbling in that respect. But I think for the vast majority, things really have changed dramatically and it's not so much what they're doing online or how they're doing it. It's the way they're coming to those answers of what to do online. And that's a totally different kind of engagement, which I, I love to see. I couldn't agree with you more. It isn't about just digitizing the paper. It's about new ways of doing business, new styles, new frameworks. And by the way, Brian, I think my father still refers to it as that internet thing. 
Yeah, it's just a thing. It's it's a phase, really. Yes. It'll pass. It'll pass. So how did online quoting and issuance impact agents and agency distribution models? It was a really tense time in the 2000-ish time period because of all of the end of insurance agents kind of mentality. And so you saw carriers' hands were being forced from a channel conflict standpoint. For most carriers, the way that they were going about it was figuring out how to ascribe credit for the sale that came through the internet to some agent. At Liberty, we had our own salespeople, so it was figuring out like what local salesperson got credit for that sale versus if you work through independent agents, sending the insured to that agent's page and giving the agent credit. It reminds me of actually what Best Buy was doing with their online portal. And of course, we don't really think much about buying technology products and and other consumer goods online. But in the early days, Best Buy was so invested in stores, they would give local stores credit for those sales based on where the purchase was made. But in reality, the store had nothing to do with that sale. And so you could call it crutches, you could call it enabling a problem in the industry instead of recognizing what was really going on and finding another way to navigate. And that's what we've come to today. So you don't see Carrier X round-robining sort of who gets credit for this direct sale to whatever local agents they have in the area. You see totally different tools at play. And so we have historically agent-sold carriers who are also selling direct or selling through a variety of different platforms that maybe aren't technically direct, but they're alternative distribution that could be seen as, as a direct threat to the agents. But then you also see those agents really accepting and embracing a lot of these same platforms as ways to digitize their business because they need those things too. So I think it it was a difficult moment for the industry. I don't know that we necessarily navigated it perfectly, but things were so early, it was hard to figure out what perfectly looked like. And today you see much more openness and collaboration on both sides. And I think that's a big part of why agents are still around. I think, at least in many lines, they will be for a good long while, if not forever, because it's about everybody evolving instead of taking it as a threat that you need to fight against. Speaking of seeing agents forever, according to Oxbow's latest report on glacial shifts in PNC value, independent agents will steadily increase in value up until the year 2030. So this makes sense due to economic reasons as well as growth opportunities by providing carriers with access to existing distribution channels for new lines. So Brian, do you have any thoughts on the future of independent agency models and how the strategy will evolve in the future? It's a tricky one to pin down the exact specifics of like what lines of business and how big and what market segments and all that. But what I do know is the war cries from a lot of the insure tech insurers were around how stupid distribution and insurance is. A lot of things in insurance are stupid is what a lot of them were saying. But in particular, distribution is so broken. Why would you pay an agent or a broker 12, 15, 20%? That's such a waste. You know, we can just sell direct. Look what we're doing with our tech background. We can just cut them out and instantly we're going to have 15 percentage point better economics than any of these incumbents. And you kept hearing that same refrain over and over again. And with almost zero exception, they pretty much all turned on agents and brokers. And it's because for a lot of these startups, they realized, you know what? Distribution and insurance is incredibly hard. And it's also not free. Just because you're not paying commission doesn't mean you're not paying. You're still paying for marketing and you have to build that brand and that market access and their customer acquisition costs for a lot of the startups is astronomical. 
a number of them also realized you can't tell customers how to do business with you. You need to recognize where customers are signaling that they want to transact and meet them there. And for some people, that is through an agent. You know, this is not a product that has high engagement, which means people aren't just like, oh, you know what? Let's go buy some insurance today. You don't ever see that. They bought something that they then have to get insured and they probably wish that they didn't. That takes getting some help. And so I think what you find, especially with the startups, is a recognition that there are multiple channels and there will likely always be multiple channels. And that's okay. So I advise carriers to be aware of that. And it cuts both ways. So it's not just about only direct is the only way to go, but it's also maybe being purely agent distributed isn't always the right answer for everyone. And you may be okay with that and stay in the agent channel and that's fine, but just recognize that means you are selecting into a specific piece of the population. It could be a huge piece, but just understand what that means. It could be you have different risk characteristics in your insured base than if you saw the market more broadly. So there's nuances to it. And I just say above all else, you must meet the customer where they are and customers don't all do things the same way. And that's why I think the channel direct intermediated, we're going to be having the same debate for decades. I really like your point. You can't tell customers how to do business with you. So meet the customer where they are. Really well said. Brian, you're well aware of the many headwinds that prevent insurers from innovating and evolving, like pressures from, let's say, compliance, regulatory bodies, distribution models, and the list continues. What is your favorite insurer innovation story? An insurer that was able to overcome strong headwinds and still successfully evolve how they do business. I think there's one that is such a brilliant example of those moments where we say, oh, you know what? We can't because X. Brian, I I hear that story, but we can't do that because we're facing this over here. We've got this compliance constraint or our systems are this or our, you know, our cat exposure is that or our capacity. We all face the same constraints. Maybe not every carrier facing exactly the same ones as the next carrier, but as an industry, we all face the same things. And most of us face many of those same things in the same ways. So what I love about this particular one that I'm going to share with you is it really busts that notion that you can't do it because insert whatever barrier headwind that we all have. And the example is the State Compensation Insurance Fund of California. Well, first of all, there's a barrier. It's like that's not a name that rolls off the tongue, right? That's uh, it's not a marketing friendly kind of name. But Skiff, to, to save time on saying their full name, is a monoline comp carrier that is actually a part of the state of California for those who don't know. You know, when we sit here and list off all the constraints we face as a carrier, they face the same ones. But when you talk about politics, you know, oh, we've got all this politics in our company. They have all that and they have actual politics because they're a unit of the state of California. Their CEO ultimately is beholden to the governor of California and that governor changes every so many years. 99% of the carriers out there never face that kind of politics. They also have unionized staff in many of their roles. I was a chief claims officer. Their claims team is largely unionized, including the attorneys. I've never heard of that. And you start to layer all these things on. And when I hear a carrier saying we can't because X, I look at Skiff and I look at what they've been able to do despite those same X's and 50 more that most other carriers aren't facing. And it gives me hope that maybe your barriers aren't as bad as you think they are, or maybe you're more capable of achieving change than you insist because they've done it. They've instituted automation and straight through processing and more digitization and a direct channel and all these other things. Can you get your staff to agree to training or using a new tool that could limit their job possibilities or the number of people who are needed in the business, you know, like automation and that fear that people have that they're going to get automated out of their job. One of the hardest places to do that in any industry is when your staff is unionized because you have to get the union to approve that. Well, Skiff's able to do that. So they're able to put in new tools and streamline things and change their staffing needs by 
implementing these tools, but that takes having the union on side. And they've built a really good relationship with their staff and with their unions. I love that example because it gives me the ammo I need to come back at anyone who's like, oh, no, we could never do that because we've got it hard. Yeah, so does everybody. And some folks have it harder than you. So you can still do this. Excellent example. And in fact, we've had a number of our carrier customers where we've had to work with the union, not around them, in order to help them transform and innovate. So thanks for sharing. But yeah. what do you think was key to their success? There's something that really becomes clear as you talk to people across the organization, and it absolutely starts with their CEO, who's got a ton of energy, this guy Bernsteiner. What it really was, was the genuine involvement of everybody. I've been at lots of carriers where we talk about doing like strategic projects, and we're going to put people from the front lines in these working groups, and we're going to involve everyone, empower everyone, and they're all charged up. But the reality is you don't really do that much with your people after those little events or, or working groups. And maybe the people present their idea at the end to the C-suite and they get an Amazon gift card and that's sort of the end of it. To me, that's not genuine involvement and engagement. For Skiff, literally the entire company was trained on things like design thinking and how to do customer journey maps and how to structure these projects. And literally everyone in the company was to participate in these project ideation groups. So they come up with an idea, they build the idea out and they make a proposal. And when I wrote the case, there had been 30 different proposals put up and 18 of them at that point had been or were being implemented. So I think if we all look around at our own projects and our own ideas, how many carriers look at an 18 out of 30 success rate for ideas they came up with that actually were going to market? I think that's a pretty good hit rate. You know, we wish our quotes were getting taken up at that rate. So that to me is a sign that whether you're an underwriter, a claims professional, an assistant or what have you, everyone was involved. They were trained, they were engaged, they were empowered, and they got to see what they were doing successfully, but actually also the things that weren't working out. It was okay to share that and talk about it instead of that project failed and we just don't talk about that anymore. It was very open and very inclusive. And I think that's a critical shift from a culture standpoint if you want to see these things succeed. Great information. When we come back after this short break, we'll continue our conversation with Brian Falchuk. Digging in Sure Talk with Laura Drabik? Be sure to subscribe on Amazon, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're at it, rate the show on Apple Podcasts and let us know how we're doing. Now, let's get back to the show. And welcome back to InsureTalk. This is Laura Drabik, and I'm talking to Brian Falchuk, industry executive and advisor. Okay, so global InsureTech venture activity hit a new high in 2021. InsureTech funding reached 566 deals, an all-time record, and $15.4 billion in capital. The majority of the investment, though, was not into new forms of tech to improve the efficiency of an insurance process, but into new forms of insurers, and in particular, digital insurers. If we follow the money, Brian, do you think the market believes that we need to disrupt the entire carrier? Or can we continue to disrupt pieces of the insurance lifecycle to meet consumers' evolving expectations? I think it's such a fascinating question. And I think what we have seen is a way to do it, but it's not the only way. Most of the innovation that we've been focused on in the industry has been around efficiency and cost cutting. And the truth is, while those are good things, like I'm an ex-management consultant, I love lean, don't get me wrong, but you can't efficiency your way to success in the long term. You can only take out so much cost. The real benefit is in your product and how you deliver it. And so I think what we've seen from most existing players is this efficiency and cost 
cost-cutting kind of mentality, which, by the way, actually hasn't worked. If you looked at historic expense ratios, they've been pretty flat. But if you look at the startups, they're trying to innovate on product or the delivery of product. What if we could have both sides of the startup and incumbent equation thinking about product differently, thinking about the delivery of product differently? I think that's how we could actually evolve the industry. It doesn't just have to be that we just go and fund a number of startups to come up with new ideas. Like, There's nothing wrong with that. But it almost presupposes that the incumbents can't do that. And I think they can. It's just the mindset is not focused there. I wish as an industry we could get there. For me running claims, if I efficiencyed my way out of having any staff, which was not possible, but even if I did that, I didn't have such a huge staff that it was a gigantic sum of money. It was single digit millions of dollars. But we were handling hundreds of millions of indemnity. So the real impact to the industry and the real impact to the carrier I was at comes on the product side, on the indemnity side, on the delivery side. So that's really where we should be focusing. And that's true of any industry. Cost cutting, cost efficiency, all those sorts of things, very valuable. I'm not saying ignore them, but that's not the real prize. And so we as an industry need to remember that and go back to innovating on the customer facing bits, not just what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Innovate on the customer facing bits. That makes a lot of sense. So there's AI, blockchain, geospatial analytics, virtual inspections, and these are all great value props within InsureTech. But what is your favorite InsureTech value proposition and how will it evolve how we serve our policyholders? Yes, Laura, this is one that I'm not sure anyone's going to follow, but I don't care because it's incredible. It's Branch Insurance, who I talk about in my second book. What Branch is doing is mind-blowing, and it's a question of how successful they end up being, whether it will catch on. But they do a lot of stuff on AI, geospatial analytics, embedded, but where they're game-changing, and this is why one of the founders, he's like, I couldn't sleep at night. I started doing pro formas in the middle of the night. And it's like, well, who does that, right? That's wild. But it's because of the way they think about the capital and the exposure base. For those who have seen the way capital is allocated in a carrier, it's typically by product or by line of business and then by year of account. So you have these large pots of statutory and reserve capital sitting allocated to specific products and within that years of account, which makes a lot of sense. The problem is you may have overlapping exposures between products. So you end up carrying extra capital that you didn't need to carry because you're basically covering for it in too many different pots. If you can think about your exposure on an exposure basis instead of by your predefined product product management buckets, you can catch those inefficiencies. And as a result, your capital needs are lower, you can deploy more of it, you can write more business, you can do it more efficiently, you can charge less, and then it's like a flywheel effect. Because the more you do that, the more you can do that. It starts to unlock more. But this to me is like mind-bogglingly transformative for the industry, and we really haven't seen anything like this since the 1950s, where homeowners came together as a product, whereas it used to be these separate products you bought from lots of different carriers. And so you're paying for the expense base on each of the carriers for your fire policy and your liability policy and whatever other policies you're buying. And then an insurance company in North America, INA, put it together into one homeowner's policy. And you had a much more efficient logistics and, and administration behind that. And so they were able to charge far less than the sum total of all those component products. We've never seen anything since then until branch. You know, it's really early, but it could be unbelievably transformative. And then we have to ask, could carriers actually change their whole capital regime? I'm not sure how many can. It's a very hard exercise. But if Branch proves it out, that could unlock literally trillions of dollars at the kind of scale that the global insurance industry operates at. I love this example. I sure hope they are successful. So according to McKinsey, up to 25% of all personal line premiums could be generated through embedded insurance ecosystems by 2030. For auto, that figure could reach 
reach 30% for travel and personal liability, it could top 50% or more. So I think that the beauty of embedded insurance is that the customer no longer has to go and hunt down insurance. Insurance comes to the customer. Brian, what are your thoughts on embedded insurance? And in particular, how will it impact auto insurance? I fully agree with McKinsey. They may even be under-egging it. I don't want to go on record saying that because, you know, usually with these predictions, they're overzealous, but this could be such a dramatic changer of the way insurance is sold and consumed because it's happening without even thinking about it. I just bought a flight right before we hopped on to record this and I never buy travel insurance. And it was right there in front of me. It was a single click, so easy. I didn't have to re-enter anything, payment information, traveler information, anything. And it wasn't that expensive. So I just did it. And it's managed right there within the airline carrier site. You know, I don't have to think about it. No way I would ever have gone and done that. But travel insurance is optional. You start to think about lines of business where it's not optional, like auto insurance or homeowner's insurance if you have a mortgage, which most people do. And renter's insurance and commercial property insurance on leased property, we're seeing more and more that it's built into the contract that you must carry this coverage. So that means you may not get that house or that car. And the idea that could actually cost you that purchase of the thing you actually wanted, because you didn't want the auto insurance, you wanted the auto it's insuring. That's really hard to stomach. And we actually already have seen signs of how much that friction in going out to get the auto coverage so you can get the car is impacting things. So Root, you know, startup insurtech carrier on the auto side, uh, announced a partnership with Carvana to embed Root's coverage into Carvana's checkout process. Just a single click. Carvana already has all the information they need for Root to do its underwriting. So you're just opting in, opting out. You already see the price. There's no like click here to go get a quote. And the reason is not because Carvana wants to make commissions on selling auto insurance. It's because Carvana is actually losing a material number of sales because insurance wasn't squared away when they went to drop off the car. So they bring the car to the customer only to find they have to bring it back to their lot and can't sell it to them because there's no insurance in place. Carvana not only loses the sale, they're delivering and bringing the car back. So they've got double the transport costs for no gain. So not having insurance squared away as part of the process is actually costing Carvana in its core business. They don't care about the risk transfer. They care about the threat to their core business. And we're seeing that in other places, other car manufacturers who are building it in like Rivian. Once your reservation is cleared, you go through the configuration process for your specific vehicle. And one of those steps is insurance and it's powered by Nationwide and Cincinnati. I think this is going to dramatically change the auto insurance market in a number of ways. It's not like the doomsday predictions we saw where the whole personal auto market goes away. There still will be a personal auto market and I think it will still be for the current carriers to play in, but who gets to play and to what extent and how they play will change. So the question then is how are you positioned to participate in that changed environment? Thanks, Brian. On the other side of this break, we'll continue the conversation, so don't go anywhere. Loving InsureTalk with Laura Drabik? For more expert insights and inspiration, subscribe to Laura's email newsletter at drabikdigest.com, your one-stop resource for Laura's latest blog posts, videos, podcasts, articles, and more. That's www.drabikdigest.com. Now let's get back to the show. Welcome back. This is InsureTalk with Laura Drabik, where we're talking with Brian Falchuk. 
Brian, I work for a cloud property and casualty software company, and I see cloud is important to our industry because it provides insurers with access to leading edge infrastructure without the operational overhead or capital expense. And cloud software provides carriers with the flexibility to rapidly prototype and deploy new lines of business and services. Is cloud delivery of modern solutions important to insurance? Should it be? And if so, why? This is the kind of question that I think I engage in the most with carriers because I keep getting like, Ryan, what's the one tech we need to put? Everyone loves being reductionist. Like what's the one food we have to eat to live forever? You know, and it was kale for a while, but now I don't know what it is. But you keep hearing this with tech too. It's like, what's the one thing we have to put in? And my answer usually disappoints people because it's not a technology. It's the word flexibility. And I think generally speaking, there's one thing that can deliver the level of flexibility you really need. And that's having a cloud-based infrastructure and cloud-based tools that you can knit together through APIs openly, easily. And we need to not just put them in place, but get more comfortable deploying them. The, the notion of integration is like the dirtiest word in insurance from a tech standpoint, right? And API integration is not old school on-prem integration that we've all suffered through. So as a carrier, to have the flexibility afforded by being cloud native is, I think at this point, fully table stakes. So if you're not thinking about it, you need to start thinking about it and probably you needed to already start it. So that is critical. And it's because of the possibilities it opens up. Because the reality is, you mentioned connected cars. We don't really know what data we're going to be using from these cars in what ways, at what points in time to change underwriting. Right? We're going to have this constant flow of data enabled by high-speed data connectivities. We're going to have information from sensors. You know, right now with a dongle or an app, you can know like how far did they drive and did they stop short or did they accelerate hard? But you have no clue if that was for a good reason or a bad reason. You know, did they stop short because they saw this sudden stop short incident in front of them and avoided an accident? Or did they stop short because they didn't see the thing in front of them because they were looking at their phone or the passenger or something else. You can't know that with a dongle or an app. You can only know that with a connected car. So what are we going to start taking in from this data? Because the car can see the driver's eyes and it knows if there was a passenger in the car and it has proximity sensing. So it knows what other objects were around it. Maybe there's vehicle to vehicle or vehicle to X. So the infrastructure and the other cars are giving it information. All that paints a picture. We don't know what all the nodes in that data stream look like. We don't know what all the data points look like. And we certainly don't know what they all mean, but we do know that we are going to have to make sense of it. And so when you can't pre-define exactly what information and in what ways you're going to use this data, you have to have flexibility. And whatever we come up with version one, no doubt it's going to change and it's going to change rapidly. And again, the only way to really keep up with that is to have the flexibility afforded by a cloud solution that can tie into all these different tools and new data models and new data sources and publish it out and receive answers back. In. I mean, all these sorts of things, you just can't do that with the ways that we've traditionally done things from a system standpoint. And so for me, cloud-based is really the only answer at this point. And I know it's a journey. Not everyone feels ready for it, but this to me is actually an existential point. So I think it needs to be a board level discussion. That's just my take on it. So you are very excited, obviously, about the future of insurance. What should insurers be most excited about in the future? I keep using the word disruption and some people don't like that, but I think we should be excited about disruption. Right now, what is insurance competition? Generally, it's who's cheapest and who's advertising the most. But I've also worked in large complex risk, and maybe it's not about being cheapest. It might be about best value, but we're basically left to share stealing. Disruption is what creates that space. So I think that's really cool is embracing it and recognizing the clouds might be parting here thanks to disruption. And where can I move ahead in that? And back to that cloud point, then you have the flexibility to grab those opportunities right when they present themselves and not think it's a five-year journey 
money till we're ready to start thinking about possibly maybe going after it, you just go. We should be embracing the kinds of disruptive things going on because that's what creates the opportunity for us to really succeed with a material advantage. So you're a leadership coach, and based on your experience, what qualities do you think define a good leader today? There's no question we've all seen the importance of empathy, especially the past couple of years, how caring for your people genuinely really matters. And your people could be your customers, your employees, your partners, but your ability to relate to and stand by other people as they're going through things and putting your own needs aside is a critical one. I would add something to that, though. It's humility. And I think this is the real leadership unlock for anyone. Humility is the kale of living forever. Like it's the thing that defines the difference between a great leader and one who is there to serve themselves. And it's the thing that can separate the best companies from those who might be just best right now, but don't have the staying power. Because through humility, you recognize that you don't have all the answers. And when you're wrong, you're excited to learn from that. So you have reverence and respect for your competitors and what you can take from them, frankly, even when they fail, right? We can laugh at them for being a failure and how bad their idea was, but I guarantee you there's something in what they did that is worth learning from and maybe doing yourself. Maybe they just lacked other things, you know, other resources, or maybe the timing was off that kept them from succeeding. Laura, you and I have talked about subscription music. When the iTunes music store came out, there was also subscription options. Microsoft Zune, for anyone who remembers that and plays for sure, or Rhapsody, total and utter failures. And everyone was like, what a stupid idea. Everyone wants to own their music. Who wants to subscribe to it? Fast forward to today, 83% of all music industry revenue for song sales is through subscription. Subscriptions. It was, you know, great idea Microsoft had. It was just not the right time. So to swear something off because you're better, you're missing out on some real opportunities that add in your resources and your capabilities to what you learned by looking around with that open mind and that humility, transformative. And that, so that's why for me, like empathy, yes, but I think humility is the real unlock. I couldn't agree more. Thanks for sharing that. So speaking of music, what's on your innovation playlist? It's embarrassing. But what I realize is when I'm really like jamming on an idea, oftentimes I will have the same song playing on repeat and I'm totally unaware of it. I mean, I've said to my wife, like I was cooking on something in a flight and I just like, I was in the zone and working through it. And I realized I had the same song playing for the entire like four hour flight. And then it's kind of like, well, what's wrong with me? Well, clearly like I was so in the zone, I wasn't even aware of it or I would have hit next. So I don't know that there's any specific thing out there, but for whatever reason, just one random song <laughs> seems to go hand in hand with maybe my most inspirational moments, which is, is kind of a weird thing, I think. Yeah, you know, I'm a lot like you as well. I find that my most creative ideas come when I run. And when I'm running, I'm like you in that I have one song that I am playing over and over again because I'm in the zone yeah. and I'm just focusing on the running and the ideas flowing through my mind. So Brian, thank you very much for your time today and your incredible insight into the future of insurance. You've showed us it's not just about ideas, it's about making ideas happen. Thank you. Tune in next time for an all-new episode of Insure Talk with Laura Dravik, brought to you by Guidewire, the platform PNC insurers trust to engage, innovate, and grow efficiently. For more information, visit guidewire.com.